thank you for this very nice uh, introduction and for the invitation, and thank you all for coming. Um, I want to start by rehearsing with you a cultural lament. I think you're going to all recognize it, but I'll see it goes like this. Something is rotten in the great edifice of modern medicine. We know modern medicine is one of the great success stories of the modern era, and yet medicine, as we've begun to appreciate it today, has begun to reveal both its ethical and its practical limitations. In spite of numerous life-saving, life-preserving discoveries, vaccines, antibiotics, surgery, its capacity to conquer the great scourged diseases of the modern age have proven in the end to be far more limited than we had fondly thought of earlier in the century. We didn't win the war on cancer. The AIDS epidemic caught all of us by surprise. More people than ever are plagued by chronic disorders from hypertension to arthritis to back pain. At the same time, and again, I'm now reciting, this is a cultural lament, this is not me, this is us talking, or so I want to argue. The engine that had once been seen as the prime engine, that was the prime engine of medicine's success, its reductionistic understanding of disease, its focus on high-tech interventions, has dehumanized medicine, has dehumanized the experience of illness has turned human suffering into something like the breakdown of an automobile, has transformed the doctor-patient relationship into an alienating, objectifying, utilitarian exchange. In 1990, the New York Times essayist and literary critic Anatole Broyard, some of you might know that name or know of his work, was dying of prostate cancer. And he wrote a series of quite moving meditations on his experience, uh, on his experience of dying, but particularly on his experience of dying within the high-tech world of modern medicine. And what he had to say to a lot of people, and in some sense to me too, really seemed to get to the gist of the matter, to expose the human heart at the center of this cultural lament. He began by saying, the real narrative of dying now is that you die in a machine. And the irony, of course, was that all of these machines that he was being put into weren't going to do him much good, but both he and his doctors knew they weren't going to do him much good, and yet he and, in a sense, also, uh, they and, in a sense, also, he continued to subject himself to one machine after the next, because in a medical culture where doctors are taught that death is failure, that death, as a critic, uh, David Morris, puts it, death is a scandal. We don't have any, any alternatives to the ritual of cure. So the result was that Broyard, as he saw it, Broyard, the person, his experience of illness, became irrelevant, became invisible. And so he wrote on this, I wouldn't demand a lot of my doctor's time. But I just wish he would brood upon my situation for perhaps five minutes, that he would give me his whole mind at least once to be bonded with me for a brief space, survey my soul as well as my flesh to get at my illness. For each man 
is ill in his own way. Just as he orders blood tests and bone scans of my body, I'd like my doctor to scan me, to grope for my spirit as well as my prostate. Without such recognition, he concludes, I am nothing but my illness. Now usually, the argument that medicine needs to find some way to make more room for the soul, for the person, for the experience, as well as for the body, for the prostate, for the parts, is made on ethical grounds, is made out of a sense of, you know, out of the, of the foundation of patient experience, is made perhaps on theological grounds, is made by people who take a more or less critical, combative attitude or stance to the reductionist, data-driven medicine uh, that they think is creating the framework that gives rise to experiences like that of Anatole Broyard. But I want to talk to you today about an emerging new voice that seems to want to claim a stake to the same ethical territory as that that was claimed by Anatole Broyard and by the clergy and by the anthropologists and by the ethicists that can be heard also insisting, like them, that modern medicine needs to make room for the life of the soul. But with one key difference. Instead of blaming modern medicine's spiritual crisis on its reductive, data-driven methodologies, this new voice that I'm interested in today grounds its call for more soul in new kinds of data produced by those methods. What it's saying to us is medicine needs to embrace the life of the soul, but not just because it would be nice to do that, although it would be nice to do that, or because patients are unhappy and maybe they're heading out to alternative medical practitioners and therefore it would be professionally advisable for medicine to do this, although they say it probably would be. But medicine should do this, they say, because new data from clinical trials, from epidemiology, from the laboratory have shown us something that we didn't previously appreciate. That being spiritual, being religious, cultivating the life of the soul is good for your health. It's good medicine. I don't know how many of you who have come have already, you know, come already familiar with this idea. Actually, I'd be interested. How many of you know this idea, have read this idea? Wow. Well, that's great. Uh, and, and so I don't, even, I don't need to make the case, because you're making the case for me, that this is an idea that isn't a marginal idea. Uh, this is an idea that's permeated all levels on, in different ways of our society. It's permeated the consciousness of elite academic medicine through data articles, through editorials in mainstream medical journals and science journals, uh, through interdisciplinary exchanges at high-profile research conferences that attract star-studded casts uh, of, of, of participants. I'll show you a couple of them. Uh, this was one that, in fact, was sponsored by the Templeton uh, Foundation in 1999, held at Duke University, which holds a particularly prominent role uh, in, the broader, in this broader argument and effort. Uh, I've looked at the proceedings of it, and it's filled with all the great 
you know, the, the big cutting edge names in psychoneuro, psychoneuroimmunology, neuroscience, medicine, and more. And here's one that was in 1998, uh, slightly different focus, but it was, it, this is actually not, a, it, it's a front cover, as you can see, of New York Magazine reporting on a conference that was taking place in New York that week called Advanced Meditation Techniques in Medicine that was a, brought the Dalai Lama together with Buddhist scholars, high-powered hospital physicians, and a whole star-studded cast of research scientists to talk about the health benefits of meditation. So it's penetrated academic medicine, scientific uh, research. It's also found its way into the consciousness of a lot of clinical practitioners, both mainstream and alternative, not least through these widely popular continuing medical, medical education courses that have been offered around the country for some four or five years now. They began in 1995 with Herb Benson's conference at Harvard University called Spirituality and Healing uh, that attracted upward of 1,000 people at its, first, uh, at its first holding and has consistently attracted upward of 1,000 people every time he's done one. And as you've demonstrated, it has a powerful place in popular consciousness. I don't know where you all read about this, learned about this, but articles have appeared about the idea that religion, spirituality is good for your health in media ranging from the New York Times to the Atlantic Monthly, to Psychology Today, to Reader's Digest, all levels uh, of, of, of popular media. Uh, and there's also a trade book, a paperback trade book industry that's found its own niche in the self-help uh, section of bookstores, uh, explaining the data and its implications to patients and potential patients, uh, most of them written by the leaders, the scientific or medical leaders of the movement. Here's a few of them. Some of you may even have some of these in your library. Um, all of these out in the last um, you know, three, four, five years. And the names here, Herb Benson, Dale Matthews, Harold Koenig, Larry Dossing. Um, I don't know if you know who these, who these fellows are, uh, but what I'll tell you is that with the possible exception um, of Dossie here, uh, all, of these, all, all of these men, uh, in varying ways, are respectable parts of the of, of medical academic culture. They hold prestigious academic appointments. Uh, one or more of them run uh, another, one or another kind of research, uh, research center on the spirituality, religion, health connection at one or another top-tier university. Let me show you a couple of these. Uh, this is more to give you just a sense um, while you're glancing over this list, um, it's worth saying that even though these universities, we've got Harvard here, this is her Benson's, Maryland, Emory, Duke, two at Duke, um, and while these universities are happy to host these research centers and give them the institutional credibility that comes with being hosted there, uh, most of the funding for these research centers as well as for the many of the conferences and continuing medical education courses comes from outside funders. And the John Templeton Foundation, almost invariably at these events, heads the list of the funders. Uh, promoting the religion health connection in general is a very high priority for the Templeton Foundation. Uh, and it really became clear to me as I began to look into this literature uh, that 
without the Templeton, I'm persuaded that the broader cultural permutation of this message wouldn't have achieved anything like the levels uh, that it has. Uh, and I thought that that, um, here's just, this is from their website, uh, the identifying the spirituality and healing in medicine issue as a priority, a funding priority uh, for them. And I thought that given that this lecture series uh, is also funded uh, by the Templeton, um, that it might be worth being curious about the role that a foundation like this can play and why this foundation is so interested in the spirituality health connection, how it fits into its broader vision of promoting science, religion, dialogue. And I'll be saying a little bit more about this a little later in my remarks, uh, but it could be interesting to pursue it even further in the discussion we'll be having afterwards. So what I've been trying to um, persuade you is that this argument that religion is good for your health is an influential one. Uh, but I haven't really told you any details yet about the argument itself. So what it consists of in detail, what, what kind of evidence it's based on. So let me tell you a little bit about this now, the anatomy of this argument. And let me start by saying that when you look more closely at it, what you see is that actually we're not dealing here with a single argument. What we're dealing here uh, with is a cluster of arguments. Uh, I actually count four distinct arguments that want to, intend to, whether they succeed in doing so is another question, but want to work symphonically together to promote this argument in as powerful, richly data-founded a way as possible. And as far as I can tell, the marshalling of these four independent arguments into the single symphonic claim is really only something that you begin to see four or five years ago. It's a new development on the horizon, the, 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 the pulling together of discrete things into a movement, the religion and health movement, is a new phenomenon. And it's been done by pulling things out of different domains. And so what, what I would like to do is break it back down into its separate domains and, and go over them uh, one after another because I think each of them, I think it'll be instructive in that each of them has its own set of starting assumptions, its own agenda, and its own kind of historical framework or context uh, from which it begins. And we can then ask again, when you repackage it all together into a whole, whether in fact you end up with a kind of symphonic effect that people are hoping for, or whether you might end up with something actually a bit more dissonant, a bit less digested uh, than they wanted to. So again, there's four of these, and this is the first one. Going to church is good for your health. How do we know this? Well, the origins of this claim lie in certain epidemiological work that began in the United States in the late 1960s when people began to worry a lot about heart disease. Heart disease in the 60s was on the uprise. It wasn't quite clear why it was on the uprise. People began in this time to ask about certain kinds of lifestyle factors that might be making people more vulnerable to heart disease, like high-fat diet, uh, like lack of exercise. Smoking is now, the, the de debate about smoking is heating up in the 1960s. Um, and so in investigating a range of lifestyle factors that might conduce to heart disease or might protect against heart disease, 
one factor began to emerge that people hadn't originally expected to find. The extent to which people seemed to be what they began to call socially embedded, seemed to feel connected to their community, seemed to have friends or contacts or people they felt they could call on, seemed to be a function as a protective factor against heart disease and, the, and isolation, loneliness, no friends, seemed to be conducive to or be a, be a risk factor uh, for, for heart attacks. So people, for example, looked at close-knit communities. Um, I, I won't show you this slide. I want to show you to show you in a second. A close-knit communities, there was a particular, I will show you it, but I'm going to have to skip over here, a particular town called Rosetto, Pennsylvania that became, became almost a Shangri-La uh, in the epidemiological literature of the 1960s into the early 70s because its citizens seemed to be protected against heart disease in a way that was found nowhere else in the country uh, until they broke up the multi-generational family and bought the second TV and got the second car and went modern and then their levels of heart disease rose to that of the rest of the country. Um, and other work suggested that more isolated people in the same community died earlier of, of a number of things, not just heart attacks, than more embedded people. And in the context of the time uh, the, that was filled with all sorts of social critiques and concerns about the alienation of the American worker, the breakdown of traditional community, the breakdown of the family, uh, the interpretation of these data seemed quite clear. Uh, heart disease was on the rise because in running after the all-American dollar, we had lost touch as a nation with more important values, with community, uh, with connection. We were now literally a nation of broken hearts. And in the beginning, no one thought that this was about saying that religion is good for your health. Uh, but they had included membership in religious communities as one of the variables that they might use to assess degree of social embeddedness. Uh, and it turned out that membership in religious communities seemed to have quite a strong predictive ability uh, to, to predict your likelihood or, or not, of, 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 get, of, of developing heart disease or not. It seemed to act as a quite distinctly strong protective factor among, um, among the others. And so you begin to see new epidemiological work in the 1970s and into the 80s that looks specifically at membership in a religious community as a protective factor um, and conclude that even when you control for other forms of social embeddedness like being married um, versus living alone or joining a, a bowling league. This is not a joke, this bowling alone um, a book here. Where's my laser here? That is a book about the breakdown of community and the fact that people don't join bowling leagues anymore was seen as an important marker of the breakdown of community. Um, but even more than being a member of a bowling league, being a member of a church or a synagogue was an seemed to be an important protective factor, especially in old age. If you were a member of a church, you're less likely to use hospital services, people said, to suffer from any number of health problems, and you might even live longer. Why? Well, initially, the tendency was still to say it's social support, but basically now to say that Churches are good for your health because they provide really good community. Uh, they reduce stress. They look after their members. They tend to frown on unhealthy behaviors. You don't 
drink a lot, do a lot of drugs, or engage in other promiscuous sex and things if you belong to many churches. They might even tend to create a culture in which individuals are encouraged to seek medical assistance earlier because they always ask you, how are you doing? You don't look so well. Have you seen a doctor? That kind of community of publicly, it's, it's part of the tradition. You, you, know, you ask about people's health, and this could have an effect, people thought. But not everyone was satisfied. In 19, but this, this was the whole story. And in 1996, an Israeli epidemiologist named Jeremiah Kark did something that some, a number of people found quite interesting. He looked at the mortality rates in 11 secular, in, in kibbutzim, and he in, in Israel. Uh, he looked at 11 secular kibbutzim and 11 religious kibbutzim. And he found that the mortality rate in the secular kibbutzim was twice that of the mortality rate in the religious kibbutzim. Even though he said he had controlled for social support, the levels of social support was just as high. I don't know why that's sort of bent, but um, sorry about that. Uh, was, just, was just as, um, there was the same level he's writing here. There was no difference, he says, um, in the social support of, or frequency of social contact between the religious and secular kibbutzim. And yet, there was this gigantic difference in mortality. So why was there, there this difference? So what the religion and health people have started, would start to say is that there's a lot more to an active religious life than just having, getting great community. There's something more intangible. And maybe that something more intangible is even more important in understanding why religion is good for your health. What could this something more intangible be? Well, the answers that this literature gives us are basically two. Uh, and I'm going to take each of them in turn. The first thing that they notice is that many, if not all, religions encourage certain kinds of contemplative prayerful, meditative behaviors uh, in their members. And the thought was that this might be one of the magic extra ingredients that's good for your health. Meditation, contemplation, is good for your health. And we knew this, or thought this anyway, because of certain things that had happened in American culture, beginning in the 1960s, when people like the Maharishi of India came over to the shores of America and turned everyone on to TM. Uh, I don't know if any of you remember or were even involved in TM, but there was a time when TM was wildly popular. TM stands for Transcendental Meditation. It was a simple, mantra-based form of meditation uh, that he felt he had simplified to make it easy for the American public uh, to learn it without needing to get involved in all sorts of complex religious kinds of understandings. Uh, it was a phenomenon that was enhanced by having a number of celebrity uh, advocates. Uh, you all know how the, remember how the Beatles went off to India to study uh, with the Maharashi and, um, and practiced TM and came back celebrating the effect it had on their creativity and, uh, and consciousness. I think the White Album was the album, I'm not sure about this, uh, the, the White Album I think was the album that they produced uh, while they were in India, I'm seeing a few nods. I think it's quite a good album. So there may be something to be said for um, you know, the, the, that, that the TM did them some good. But the essential point is that in the 1960s, 
in this period, people weren't meditating because it was good for their health. They were meditating to enhance their consciousness or to you know, develop spiritually. The emphasis starts to change. Meditation gets reconfigured as a medical thing only in the 1970s. When, in particular, when a particular Harvard cardiologist named Herbert Benson, who I know because he's at Harvard and we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about this stuff, um, does something very interesting. He connects TM, meditation, to the emerging interest in medicine um, in stress. Stress is still in the 1970s, not, hasn't been very long in the American popular consciousness. It only gets introduced into American popular consciousness with Hans Selye uh, in the late 1950s. But people now know that they're stressed in the 1970s and they need to do things for their stress. Uh, and against this background, public interest in stress, and against also a understanding of stress that is quite physiological, can be modeled in animals, Herb Benson conceptualizes TM as a stress buster, as an antidote to stress, and he even renames it into the relaxation response. Who's heard of the relaxation response? Well, so he's been successful in them. Um, it's great, this is very fun. I can keep getting you to um, kind of very, you know, as I uh, kind of move through the points that I'm not, that I'm not off base. Uh, he renames it very successfully, repackages it as the relaxation response, and in repackaging it, and calling it that explicitly sets it up as the opposite of the stress response. It's the thing that reverses the physiological state caused by the fight or flight reaction um, and called in, uh, therefore, the stress response. So meditation gets conceptualized as a stress buster. Here's Benson's relaxation response up in, hang on, I never seem to know where the, there it is, where the, Here's his, but you'll see here I've got also um, a couple of other people uh, up on, on the slide, including John Kabat-Zinn in Worcester, Massachusetts, who has also reconceptualized meditation as a stress buster, but has started with a different starting kind of meditation rather than a mantra-based meditation uh, developed out of, uh, out, of, out, of, out of transcendental meditation. He uses a form of breath-based meditation uh, that's widely practiced in, in Buddhism uh, called Vipassana or mindfulness meditation. Uh, it's thought to first expand the mind to stabilize attention. Uh, and he begins to teach a simple form of Vipassana meditation to patients suffering uh, from a whole range of chronic disorders at a clinic in Worcester, Mass. Uh, some of you may even have seen him. He was the featured guy on about meditation in a 1993 a PBS special that Bill Moyers narrated called Healing and the Mind that has sold more, been more widely seen and sold more volumes of the companion book according to the publisher than any other book of its kind. How many people have seen it? I can keep going. Do you, oh, not, that, not as many. All right, well, so it's just... Uh, uh, and what he says is that patients who learn this meditation learn to cope better with pain. Uh, on some very subjective scores of, of, of discomfort or incapacity, they do better. And more recently, he's even begun to argue that the practice itself boosts the immune system and therefore may have a direct effect on the likelihood of people getting more sick or sick in the future. Now, 
Something else is important to say about this piece of the anatomy of the argument that religion is good for your health. It's clear that both Benson and Kabat-Zinn have brought meditation into medicine, uh, have, have brought something into medicine that has origins in Asian religious traditions. Um, but both of them, in different ways, insist that you don't have to be Buddhist to meditate, you don't have to be Hindu, Hindi to meditate, you don't have to be Indian, you don't have to be Asian, you don't even have to be religious to meditate. This practice has an independent validity, they want to say. You don't need a religious context for it. At the same time, if you are religious and your religion happens not to be Buddhist or one of the others, uh, then you should know there's almost certainly a meditative tradition in your own faith that has its own, or a, that, that has its own tools and techniques that will let you get the same health-enhancing effects as the Buddhist ones. Um, in interviews, Benson has talked about how when he first began spreading the word about the relaxation response, uh, he was, quote, startled at the excitement among the religious pros, close quote, in the Christian community. They started to tell him that in introducing them to the relaxation response, he'd reminded them of the power uh, of these kinds of practices in their own tradition uh, that they largely lost touch with. One goes on to say, one of these clergy, this is why I came into church work in the first place and I lost it. The relaxation response helped this clergyman reconnect to his faith. So meditation is good for your health, and it doesn't matter what faith tradition you use to ground your practice in. But the religion and health argument doesn't stop there. It also wants to claim that belief is a healing power Belief or faith is also good for your health. And to say also that it's good for your health no matter what you believe in. It doesn't matter what you believe in. In the eyes of this argument, all beliefs in a higher power are equivalent because all of them, or at least this is the assumption, have the capacity to marshal these endogenous healing capacities in the sincere believer. You can believe in any religion you want. You can even believe in modern medicine if that's what you think is the higher power. They accept, then they will call it the placebo effect and they might possibly configure it somewhat differently. You can believe in the power of belief itself if you've been persuaded by the data. But the important thing is, is that it's belief that has power here. It's not the object of belief. So Benson writes, for example, in a book um, he's now, he moved from meditation to belief, he sort of has followed a lot of these trends. I describe God with a capital G in this book, but nevertheless hope readers will understand that I'm referring to all the deities of the Judeo-Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, and Hindu traditions, to gods and goddesses, as well as all spirits worshipped and beloved by humans all over the world and throughout history. In my scientific observations, I have observed that no matter what name you give the infinite absolute, you worship. No matter what theology you ascribe to, the results of believing in God are the same. Well, how do they know? What is the scientific... How do we know that belief is a healing power? The research tradition here is actually quite complicated. In our own time, we hear about ideas so particularly associated with cancer, about fighting spirit and positive attitude. 
uh, patients with a strong faith as having a better outcome in many instances than those who give up who are negativistic. This is seen as relevant. There's new interest in our time in the ways in which giving people fake pills, so-called placebos, might actually create real physiological changes in their brains and then in their bodies, and this is part of the larger argument or evidence. Uh, but it's important to know that these ideas that belief is a healing power have, are, are rest on foundations that go back much deeper in American history and have a deep cultural persuasiveness for us that in a sense go, is bigger and transcends the particular data that we might talk about today. We're already in some sense for other reasons persuaded. And the larger history here, if I you know, had time to kind of go into it, would take us, for example, to the late 19th century uh, when a group of physicians uh, found themselves caught out by uh, some remarkable goings-on in a little village in France called Lourdes, uh, where a, the Virgin Mary had apparently appeared to a simple shepherdess named Bernadette, had guided her uh, to a spring in a grotto that no one had previously known was there, Miraculously, water sprang up. Healings began almost at once, uh, and the healings were impressive. So much so that the church, eventually, after much prevarication and concern about this, declared the Lord's to be an official healing site, declared the miracle of the appearance of the Virgin to be genuine, but set up a board of doctors to ensure that the phenomenon didn't get out of hand to ensure that only, that, that, and they would be the ones who would declare which of the many miracles being declared by the people would count as genuine miracles. And within a few years after that, these church-appointed doctors were joined by a group of naturalistically minded and in many cases anti-clerical physicians who, unlike the church-appointed doctors, knew already that God wasn't behind any of the miracles. They just thought he might be behind a few of them. They knew he wasn't behind any of them. But for that reason, they were forced to be even more impressed by the power of the human mind that was the only logical alternative explanation for the kinds of phenomena that people were seeing at Lourdes. In the slide here that you see, um, the doctor on the left is a very famous late 19th century neurologist named Jean-Martin Charcot, uh, who was among these secular doctors who was, were greatly discomfited uh, by the appearances, at, by, by the healings at Lourdes. This is Bernadette. Uh, these are people praying in the grotto, and the pool uh, where, where the healings happen uh, is here uh, in front of them. Charcot has a patient who comes back from Lourdes who he'd been unable to cure and who yet found a cure apparently lasting at Lourdes. And he wrote a paper. It was actually the last paper he wrote before he died in 1893 called La Foi qui guérit, The Faith That Heals, in which he closes by quoting Shakespeare's Hamlet, There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And ironically, what both the church-appointed doctors and the anti-clerical doctors shared here is a conviction that the power of mind and the power of God are mutually exclusive categories. For the church-appointed doctors, they could only begin to contemplate a miracle at the point where they believed the power of mind left off. But in about the same time that you see these things 
going on in Lourdes a few decades, a few decades later. Uh, you see in the United States, and this takes us back to our context, a growing movement in Protestant, Protestant America that took quite a different view about the relationship between mind and divinity and belief. This is a movement that we don't know as much about as we should because it's still very influential in all sorts of somewhat subterranean ways in our own thinking, known as mind cure, or sometimes new thought, sometimes practical Christianity, and sometimes Christian science. This was a view that begins with a vision uh, in which God isn't external to the human mind. God is imminent in the human mind. Uh, it begins with that view, and then it goes on to say uh, that we know that the human capacity for faith can bring healing effects. So why shouldn't we actively cultivate this capacity, deliberately cultivating it as a spiritual practice, as a way of realizing what they call the practical presence of God in our lives? And the result is this legacy uh, that I've told you is still very much prominent uh, in our culture today that was described in yet, a, in yet another term, this isn't the term they used themselves, but by William James uh, as a, re a religion of healthy-mindedness. James reported on this in his Varieties of Religious Experience in 1902. This seems to be just, I mean, let me see if I can, why is this sort of cut off? All right, I can't seem to do anything about that, but um, it looks fine on my screen and it's cut off on yours, I'm sorry. Uh, the blind have been made to see the halt to walk, lifelong invalids have had their health restored. One hears of the gospel of relaxation, of the don't worry movement, of people who repeat to themselves, you, who repeat to themselves youth, health, vigor. You've heard of, uh, of, of Kuwait, Emile Kuwait, looking in the mirror every day, in every way, I get better and better. I got a mantra every morning. This is part of this broad movement that we're seeing here. And I've been saying that it's left a legacy in our time, and you can probably guess at some of these legacies, and you might not guess at all of them. Uh, certainly Mary Baker Eddy's Christian Science is one of the institutionalized legacies of this broad cultural movement. So is Norman Vincent Peale and the power of positive thinking that has permeated not just medical thinking uh, but, and, and Christianity, but the business world. Donald Trump is a follower of Norman Vincent Peale, his church, his philosophy. Uh, a lot of aspects of New Age thinking, uh, this idea that you are your thoughts, oh, can, you can trace a legacy back to the mind cure movements. And part of the agenda of the Sir John Templeton Foundation can also be clarified in terms of this movement because it turns out that the founder of the Templeton Foundation, Sir John Templeton, um, it implicitly, explicitly acknowledges his, that his own religious faith has been shaped by his exposure to the more, later more institutionalized forms of mind cure, particularly something called the Unity Church, um, that the Templeton Foundation has also not only has it had a personal influence on Sir John, uh, but the Templeton Foundation, its ideas, it's promoted, uh, and it's even published uh, various histories and tracts about the Unity Church which is an institutionalized uh, kind of organization promoting mind cure. One last thing I'll say about the power of belief idea um, is that it's provided a broader legacy to, uh, a legacy to the broader science and religion dialogue in our time. In particular, um, 
has offered a new way of thinking about a question that has been of interest to people in these dialogues, um, the question of why are people religious in the first place? And I don't know whether some of you came to the talk by Pascal Breuer where he gave a certain evolutionary, he gave a particular evolutionary argument uh, about why that is, and since I wasn't there, I'm not quite sure, I won't venture to say what it was, but what we're now hearing, whatever it was, I don't think it would have been this one, what we're now hearing is that evolution has produced in us, in us a religious animal, an incorrigibly religious animal, uh, because, Doing, because, it was, because religion is good for our health, that it gave us a selective advantage in giving us a health benefit uh, that we wouldn't otherwise have had. And in a time when medicine didn't have much more to offer, those people who had this strong capacity for faith uh, had an advantage um, over those who didn't. And so we move from the pragmatic idea that belief is good for your health uh, to the broader argument that some of you may also have seen that we're wired for God. Why are we wired for God? Because it's good for our health to be wired for God. All right, so we've covered a fair bit of ground already. We've reviewed the logic of the claims that going to church is good for your health. We've reviewed the argument that meditation and contemplative activity is good for your health. We've reviewed the idea that having that belief is good for your health, but we're not quite done. There's one more claim that sits among the other claims in this broad religion is good for your health argument uh, that I want to turn to now. And I'm sort of sounding a little mysterious here or slowing up because it's a claim that sits uncomfortably with these other. That's not quite clear if it's an argument of the same order as these others. And this is what it says. Prayer works. It doesn't work because of the social connection you might get from praying in a church. It doesn't just work because of the special contemplative experience you might have when you're praying. It doesn't work because of, you might have an experience of strong faith or belief when you pray or when someone prays for you. Prayer itself changes people's health, is what this last claim is saying. And we know this, this last claim is saying, because when someone else, pray, when someone prays for the health of a sick person, even if the sick person doesn't know that he or she is being prayed for, it has an effect. One that can be captured inside the modern research methods of clinical medicine. Specifically, what people have said uh, is that when you take a group of seriously ill patients and you randomize them into a prayer group and into a control group, the sick people who are prayed for do better on a number of variables than those who aren't prayed, prayed for. And this happens even when they don't know if they're in the active treatment group or in the control group or even that there's a study going on at all. They've tried it in both ways. Now, like the other three claims that I've reviewed, there's also a larger history to this particular piece of the argument. Uh, it goes back to the rise of statistics, and more specifically to the rise of a vision of statistics in the late 19th century that saw it as a powerful new tool that would be in a position to comment usefully on long-standing policy issues, uh, social issues. 
uh, and in particular goes back to an advocate, a proponent of this vision of statistics, a man who was also Charles Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, um, who decided, among other things, that he might use the new statistical methods being developed at that time to address a question that previously had been seen as simply a matter of faith. Does prayer work? And decided to make it a matter of numbers, a matter of science. Let's find out if prayer works. Well, how could we find out? What he did is he looked up the records for a series of different kinds of affluent, the, 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 uh, I'm sorry, the records, the, the, the death dates, the amount, the, how long people had lived, whatever those things would be called, the, the records of their longevity, the relative lifespan of a series of selected affluent members of English society. He excluded all of those who had died before the age of 30 or who had died of accident uh, of, of, of some sort or other. Um, and this is what he found. Now, what do you notice? This isn't an interactive lecture, but you might notice. Uh, you can be interactive perhaps if you like. Um, what he thought is that there was no more prayed for segment of English society than the royal family. At every single dinner, tears to the you ask God to pray for the health of the king. Uh, and so by, if prayer works in any, if you have a kind of dosage model of prayer, you would imagine the royal family would have longer than anyone else. In fact, they lived shorter on average than anyone else in the entire list. And where are they? The clergy, who you'd imagine both did a lot of praying and had a lot of praying done for them, didn't do as well as the gentry, who were kind of the people who, you know, they, they drank a lot, they lived, they lived indolent life, lifestyles, they, they weren't the praying types, they didn't do as well uh, as a number of other uh, members of, uh, of, of this. In fact, I'm now confused about this because according to my other notes, they, the clergy should actually should have lived not less long uh, than lawyers and physicians. So what do they do? And there's something, maybe I, I, maybe I might have inverted or gotten the numbers wrong. The, the upshot was that the clergy also, uh, in, among the professions, didn't live as long as would have been predicted given the amount of praying they did for themselves and for others. So back then, it was seen as kind of a good joke, a bit of a joke by other members within the, within the scientific community, and it was seen by the clergy as all a bit of an affront. And they said at the time that you can't domesticate God with numbers. You, prayer is a private thing. It's an ineffable thing. Uh, it's, it's, it has an efficacy beyond the reach of science and statistics. But our own time seems to feel differently about it. Uh, prayer is back now on the table in the realm of statistics. Uh, and the last 15 years in particular have seen a number of efforts to try to detect the presence of God in the numbers. Uh, and the landmark case here is a case by a California physician named Randolph, the Randolph study here is by a, a California physician named Randolph Beard, uh, spelled B-Y-R-D. He studies, studied 393 patients who were admitted to a coronary care unit uh, in a VA hospital in San Francisco, assigned the patients randomly into two groups, recruited a group of born-again Christians, uh, all of whom were daily prayers, prayed on a daily basis, um, 
and he asked um, them to now add to their prayers uh, they, a group of people whose names they only got the first name of. They were, they were told what disease they suffered from and what their first name was. And he said to the, the, the intercessors, as they were called, please pray for these people. Ask, them, ask God to give them a speedy recovery with no complications. And so that's what they did. And the control group didn't get any, although they didn't try to control for the possibility that the families might be praying for these other people. And this leads to all sorts of weird kinds of things about, you know, kinds of methodological conversations about the effect of background prayer or dosage of prayer. Uh, but it, at any rate, you know, if you imagine, you know, the more is better um, than, you know, but at any rate, what they found is that actually it had no effect on the speed of recovery. The patients in the control group and in the prayed, prayed for group were released from the hospital on average in the same number of days. But the prayed for group did better on, a, at a statistically significant level than the controls on six of 26 factors. Now we can come back and talk more about sort of what people have thought about this study. But I'm more interested in its cultural resonance and in the impact it's had. And the impact was to electrify people uh, interested in this kind of thing. It's been called the landmark study. It's the study to replicate. It was replicated in 1999, or at least it was claimed to have done by a man in Kansas named William Harris. Uh, it's, there's now another replication underway by, guess who, Herbert Benson, sponsored by, guess who, the Templeton Foundation, uh, that apparently will, the results will be released. It's all been very, very much you know, hushed up and uh, but the results will be released in a few months, apparently, of this study. But even at this stage, from a cultural analytic point of view, there's a few things we can say about this piece of the argument. Uh, we're no longer, I said this one sits uneasily with the others, and I want to push that issue now here. We're no longer now simply in a realm of arguing for the utilitarian benefits. Uh, of religious faith, even though folk like Dale Matthews, who's one of the people who's been involved in this work, he gave a speech to a class of graduating medical students, and I can just imagine their bemused faces. He told them they better get ready, because he put it, the future, of medi the medicine of the future is going to be prayer and Prozac. <laughs> um, I, I knew I wanted to get that line in somewhere in this talk. Um, but clearly, the stakes are higher now than just, you know, a new kind of medicine. Uh, and here's the issue. When we look at the other three claims that I've reviewed for you, what you see is that they're always careful to leave open the option that God is real, the option of God's reality. But their argument doesn't inherently depend on God's reality on whether or not God really exists. But this is a different, we're, we're in a different space now because if prayer works, works in a way that can't be reduced to the placebo effect, to social support, to stress reduction, then science has apparently proved the existence of God or the existence of some kind of divine energy. Now people kind of situate in slightly different ways. Uh, some, something that we don't understand something supernatural operating in the world. And this is why you find these prayer studies being discussed not just, in contrast to the other ones, not just within the religion and health 
movement literature, but also as part of various other kinds of discussions about the ways in which science is finding evidence for the existence of God in this world. It's set up alongside discussions about, for example, the anthropic principle in physics, which is the idea that the universe was deliberately constructed to support intelligent life, and this is evidence of a creator. It sits up there along other so alongside other kinds of arguments about the inadequacy of evolutionary theory to account for the world that we see. It sits up alongside discussions about near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences that are seen as evidence for the reality of the soul. It also has a space in this other, other, in this other kind of conversation. But that's not the only reason why this last claim of the four sits uneasily uh, with the rest. Uh, because the other three, as I've also already said, at least tend, at least implicitly, to see themselves as theologically neutral. There's something that stands above and beyond any specific historically grounded faith tradition that you can call religion. And even the title of this conference series suggests you know, that we've accepted that there's something called religion that we can talk about sensibly, apart from any specific religion. Sometimes they'll talk about spirituality as also something that stands above and outside of any specific instantiation. And then that way they can be pluralistic uh, and tolerant in terms of any particular kind of faith tradition through which people seek to gain the health benefits of religion. But all the studies that have claimed to prove the efficacy of prayer have tested the efficacy of Christian prayer. And this hasn't been lost on some people. I found a Christian fundamentalist website that's devoted to posting evidence for the reality of the Judeo-Christian God, and this is what it said. First it starts with, I don't have, no other religion, I pulled that one out, has succeeded in scientifically demonstrating that prayer to their God has any efficacy in healing. And then it goes on, obviously science has demonstrated in three separate studies the efficacy of Christian prayer in medical studies. There's no scientific explanation for this. The only logical explanation is God exists and he answers the prayers of Christians. The Bible declares that Jesus Christ has power over life and death and sickness and is able to heal us both physically and spiritually. He gave this power to his disciples and those who follow him. Here's the website if you want to learn more. So where does this leave us? I hope it leaves us with a lot of questions and an opportunity for really good conversation. Uh, some of the questions might be the sort that, that you might have, might be the sort that the scientists themselves have had. You might have questions about how good is the evidence here? What should I believe? What about the methodologies? How persuasive are the interpretations? Others of the questions that some of you might have uh, might be the sort of questions that theologians have asked about this whole tradition. Uh, what's the relationship between traditional understandings of, say, Christianity uh, and this, or, other, or any kind of traditional faith-based tradition and this theologically neutral, utilitarian vision of better health through faith, of better health through religion? Can we properly talk about an entity called religion that stands above and outside of any specific instantiation uh, and if the ob of, of, of a religion and if the object of faith is less important than faith itself 
then how will people choose their religions? How will people practice their religions? These are the sort of things that clergymen have started to become interested in and concerned about. Not to speak of the fact of what are we going to do with the fact that sitting in among the rest of other, these other claims and thoroughly undigested with them is this strain of sectarian fundamentalist Christianity that also wants to stand on the foundations of these data uh, to promote its own understanding of what they mean. So I hope we might have a chance to talk about some of these broader issues, but I'm not going to pursue them here because what I want to do in the last three or four minutes that I'm going to talk to you uh, is go back to where I started this evening um, with, this, with our widespread lamentation about a spiritual crisis in medicine, our desire for a medicine with more soul. And the claim within this movement that I've been calling the religion and health movement that it's in a position to help us. And the claim is very explicit. Uh, this is a quote from a newly published gigantic 800-page compendium called the Handbook of Religion and Health uh, that reviews more than 1,600 studies uh, on the religion-health connection and identifies its work by saying, you know, patients are caught, they want the high-tech stuff, but they also want to have their spiritual needs met. Scientific medicine needs to figure out a way to reclaim to the understanding of doctor as healer, and so on. You can see the quote in full up here. So this is the familiar lament we're being offered here in the introduction to this gigantic definitive compendium. And, as, and the compendium itself is being offered as a solution to this cultural lament. And now that I've kind of walked through some of the architecture of of, of, the, of the solution, I can ask and ask, invite you to ask with me, are we persuaded that this understanding of religion and its connection to medicine is in a position to help us with the spiritual crisis of modern medicine? Can you use data from scientific medicine to challenge the ethical and existential limitations of scientific medicine? And I want to argue that the answer has to be no. And it has to be no, not because the religion and health movement doesn't offer us anything of value, but because this movement is actually about something different than I think it sometimes realizes itself. We can look for some good things to emerge from this movement in, on, on its own terms. I think that some of its data are in a position to contribute to richer, more contextualized understandings of human beings as they really are, uh, to make more fuller room for human beings in context with their hopes and fears. I think that that's something good we can look to from this, from this movement. I think that some of the practical applications that have been developed out of these data are valuable. I think teaching pain patients forms of simple meditation is a valuable contribution. But, in the end, this is all still about more research and more therapy. It's about putting prayer alongside Prozac. It's about putting meditation next to antibiotics. And that's why, it's this reason that I want to propose to you, to claim to you, argue with you, that the religion and health movement is an inadequate answer can never function as an adequate answer to the spiritual crisis of modern medicine. Because what this 
spiritual crisis is all about. And we know this from the patients, we know this from the clergy, we know this from the hospice workers, uh, we know this from medical anthropologists and ethicists. What it's about isn't more therapy, but more communion. It's not about more making well. It's about more making sense, making meaning. Broyard, Anatole Broyard, who I opened with, didn't want his doctor to tell him that he should pray because it might help his cancer. Or he should consider going to church for his health, uh, even exposing that he was a religious person and he wasn't, in fact, a religious person. What he wanted was for his doctor to stop trying to fix him and instead to just spend a little time beholding him as he actually was, listening to what was in his soul, listening to his efforts to make meaning of his experience. Now, advocates of, of the health and the, the health religion connection, if there any of them were in this room, would probably say, well, we know that there's more benefits to prayerfulness, to connection, to all these things than just the medical. Uh, we know that they don't stop being valuable when they stop being medicine, but even the way they would concede this point misses the much more radical issue that Broyard and the many, many patients on whose behalf he was speaking was trying to make. It's not simply the case that prayer and witness bearing and meditation also remain valuable after they stop being therapeutic. They're actually most powerful when they function as moral antidotes to a form of medical practice that doesn't know any other register than the therapeutic. Because what people find so dehumanizing, I want to argue, and we can discuss this, but I at least want to put it out there, what they find so dehumanizing about the experience of being ill in modern medicine uh, is their encounter with a system of thought and practice that judges, judges all things according to a utilitarian calculus of health, is prepared to go to almost any length in the quest of some new, better, more powerful therapy, whether it's in the realm of the body, the realm of the mind, and now we'll just we'll take the spirit also, thanks, and put it in the service of the same set of values. It's a set of values that is the reason why so many of us are destined, as Anatole Broyard put it, to die in a machine. Because in the end, uh, it, it's because in the end, scientific medicine uh, and the larger therapeutic culture, as it's been called by a number of analysts, that sustains scientific medicine in our own time, we do, we, it, we're, we're destined to, desire to, to die in a machine because this medicine has so little confidence in any values beyond the individual, beyond the utilitarian. And the religion and health movement may be many things, but one thing it certainly is, is an invitation to religion and to spiritual life to serve those same values of, the of, the, of a therapeutic ethos. And the image that I have, uh, as I contemplate what I think would happen if the religion and health movement succeeds in the way it imagines that it wants to succeed, is a future in which we all still die in a machine, but now we have our passage eased by meditative mantras and by artfully placed objects of religious significance. And surely what we want or would consider to be an adequate response to the spiritual crisis of medicine must be something more than or different from that. But what it exactly is going to be, 
I maybe I've hinted a little bit at what I think it might want to be, but what it exactly will be, perhaps I'll leave to the discussions and the general conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to Professor Harrington for her talk. Now, I would like to remind you that if you'd like to ask questions, we have index cards with we, which we have distributed. If you don't have one, please feel free to write a question on anything you have, and uh, we'll, we'll be collecting them now. Uh, we will invite our three discussants, first Gerardo Aldana, then Francesca Bray and Barbara Harthorne, to come up and offer brief comments. I'd like to thank uh, first Anne for that stimulating paper and discussion tonight, um, Jim for the invitation to come and speak, comment on this impressive paper, and of course my colleagues for allowing me to go first on the comments. My own specialization is in uh, the ancient Maya history, hieroglyphics, and science, and so I'm going to kind of confine my own remarks here to more questions of methodology and um, the history of science in general. So the challenge in the history of science, as I see it, is to come to a set of conclusions that depends on knowledge characterized as historical, scientific, and philosophical, yet does not wholly fit within any of these disciplines. In this sense, Professor Harrington's work here is, of course, quite successful, yet I'd like to comment on how it is equally quite robust. As Professor Harrington has noted, there are several lines of inquiry available to the researcher once the crux of the problem is identified. Whether, for example, the results are scientifically valid or how the methodology might be challenged. But we might also ask whether following any of these lines should lead to the same conclusions. We cannot always be sure, but I'd like to demonstrate one case in which they do. In particular, I refer to the specific medical tests entrusted with the goal of determining whether or not prayer positively affects the health of another person. Key here are the tests by William Harris intended to measure the effect of a person's health when that person does not know that he or she is being prayed for. We're called blind intercessory prayer, prayers. In effect, what researchers have constructed here is an organic instrument for detecting the divine. That is, accepting that the tests are yielding a significant correlation between prayer and improved health, and acknowledging that the jury is still out on this matter, they comprise an indirect means of detecting the supernatural. Indeed, Erwin Tessman, who is a critic of the religion and health studies, has noted that if validated, these studies are absolutely monumental, constituting the first scientific proof, as Professor Harrington has noted, of the supernatural. Yet it is, it is even more than that, and here you'll have to excuse me because I'm going to put on my engineering hat to explore the, the ramifications. If we can test for the efficacy of prayer, then we can test for the relative efficacies of different forms of prayer. At some hypothetical level, then, the people of a given religion become the scientific instrument for the investigating of their version of the divine. With this type of instrumentation, one might attempt to derive a sort of religious health index. And I'm not sure how this would play out, but it might work something like the stock market where you're kind of checking to see whether or not your own religious health index has gone up or down, whether or not. For example, um, the Protestant health index has dropped 14 points today because we've 
come up with a new scientific study. Now, this may smack of hyperbole, but the studies already conducted have contributed in something of this manner. William Harris himself conducted a study measuring the efficacy of Christian prayer, but in defending his results against critics, he cited several studies drawing on various traditions, Buddhist, Native American, New Age, and so this would contradict the slide that, that says that only Christianity has proven to have effective prayer. And in all of these cases, the results did favor the groups that were prayed for over the control group, but in no case were the results markedly different according to religious tradition. Now, this observation itself brings up two further lines of inquiry, one which corroborates Professor Harrington's conclusions, demonstrating the earlier promised robustness of her conclusions. The other speaks to the larger historical context of these investigations. And to the first, both sides of the debate on the efficacy of prayer can see that the rest of a religious tradition, whatever that tradition may be, has far more effect on one's health than the marginal amount contributed by intercessory prayer. Namely, the psychological effects of having a supportive community and of maintaining a positive morale, for example, far outweigh the contestable contribution of third-party anonymous healing. In other words, if one is looking for rational justification of religion, these prayer studies don't change anything. Religion has already been shown to be good medicine. And this, I think, is largely, largely Professor Harrington's point that reducing religion to medical utility might prove marginally beneficial to individual cases, but for society as a whole, it would be wrong-headed. The take-home message then becomes that religion is good for you even when you are gravely ill, not just when you are. And you can reach this conclusion in more than one way. Now to the second point, I wanted to point out that there is a separate philosophical issue worth considering here. And namely, that along with AIDS and cancer, Neither has modern medicine been able to prevent the death of the subject, and that's capital D, capital S. That is, with regard to religion, science generates yet another perspective on the postmodern condition. So that when the contested results are accepted, and I'm not saying that they should be yet, medical tests cannot distinguish any hierarchy among systems of belief. Native American, Christian, Islamic, Buddhist, etc., all of these spiritualities all produce quantitatively indistinguishable results. No one culture is primary from a medical perspective. Now, Miles Jackson, without stating it explicitly, has demonstrated a similar postmodern condition within the development of physics during the 20th century and the loss of epistemological priority given to particle physics. What has come out of the human humanities and the soft sciences, then, is now being recognized within the hard sciences, as I claim. I suggest that Professor Harrington's work here not only captures the important points of the debate in on religion and health studies, but also contributes to a recognition of postmodernity's infiltration into science itself. Thank you. It's a very hard act to follow. Um, I'm an anthropologist and historian of China, interested in science, technology, and medicine. And the third commentator is an anthropologist. And we were a little worried that our comments might overlap. But I see we had no need to worry about this. And that is testimony both to the richness of the subject and the wonderful depths and horizons which Anne Harrington opened for us. 
I think though all of us were captivated by the notion that prayer is good for you and have focused on that. I have to say that uh, as an anthropologist, I found myself falling into this cynical preamble. It's very interesting that in all four of the arguments that Anne Harrington was discussing, spiritual powers are supposed to cure rather than to kill. Uh, anthropologists are used to looking at spiritual powers killing and harming as well as curing, and I was wondering if anybody had experimented yet with one religion or another on the, <laughs> the medical efficacy, for example, of the curse of witchcraft or of spells during biomedical treatment. I think I'll apply for a grant. <laughs> uh, Anne Harrington argues that the four kinds of what I character, uh, characterized myself as add prayer to medicine and stir endeavor, which she distinguishes between here, all fail to meet the point of our discontent discontent with modern technological medicine. And this, she says, is because they're all attempts to configure belief or prayer as an additional form of therapy. And in fact, in reading the paper, I was thinking of the Chinese concept of, um, of replenishment or stimulation, uh, drugs which build up certain forces within the body and which are often translated into modern medical terminology in China and in the West interested in modern uh, traditional Chinese medicine in terms of stimulus to the immune system. So I was thinking of prayer as a stimulus to the immune system. Um, it seems rather to promote healing and to strengthen the inner resources of the body. So too does social connection rather than actually to come in and remove the diseased appendix. In any case, as Anne Harrington was saying, the root of our dissatisfaction with modern medicine is not in the insufficiency of therapy, but in its excess. We just, the doctors just won't leave us alone to die in peace. And what we find is lacking is meaning. Now, it seems to me that we turn to the search for meaning when hope of a physical cure is lost. Before that, we're probably more preoccupied with getting first well and thinking about the meaning later. Modern medicine offers us very powerful therapies, but as we heard, it can't cure everything. We keep researching to try to make it cure more, as if death could be conquered. And of course, to restore health and life, most people are, and have always been, and probably always will be, prepared to try anything. They're not going to resign themselves. They're going to keep trying. However, usually a point is reached where we believe that therapy has reached its limits. And that, it seems to me, is when the cry of despair goes up. How do we make meaning of this situation? The dilemma as experienced by Anatole Broyard is that nowadays doctors are often even slower to, the, to accept the inevitability of death than the patient. Now if we go back to earlier, under, earlier scientific medicines, say in, emerging in the 17th and 18th century, we find that God and the body hadn't been quite so clearly separated as we seem to think they have been now. Science consisted in the discovery of God's order, and the order was manifested in natural laws 
And we as humans were in duty bound to try and understand these laws and to apply them to the improvement of the human condition. But although God wasn't usually expected to take the trouble to intervene in experiments with physics, for example, in the case of medicine, God was still there. God's general principles were manifest in the material order of the physiological processes with which the physician was concerned. The physician was trying to work with physiology to produce a cure. However, what the physician could do was inflected. These processes were inflected by God's final decision about when to take back the soul of this individual mortal patient. So there was a kind of useful split in responsibility from the doctor's perspective. He was able to declare that he could do no more for the patient and advise the family to call in a priest, at which point meaning became more important than healing. A little more radically, physicians in imperial China were supposed to refuse to treat a case they diagnosed as fatal. They weren't supposed to waste the money or squander the hopes of the family. At that point, the family and patient could accept the inevitability of death and pray for the salvation of the patient's soul and look for comfort in resignation and philosophy. But they might also try to find another patient who was more optimistic, willing to try a bit more ginseng, or they might turn to prayer as an alternative therapy of last resort. And this is analogous to the fourth case which Anne Harrington discusses. And I think, for me, one of the interests of this paper was the kind of ambiguity of praying for yourself or for others in this. We find, of course, the same in the Christian tradition as in the Chinese, that everybody is likely to have been praying for the patient's recovery all along. But the intercessionary prayer that Anne Harrington describes to us can serve a twofold purpose. First, I'm sure that uh, it is also asking God to be merciful towards the soul, which was usually what people were praying for when they'd given up hope in the old days. But it can also ask God for an extension of the lifespan that he has allotted to the individual. It can ask God to change his mind, to grant a miracle. So I think Anne Harrington is right that what we see in her first three cases is religion or spirituality or social solidarity being conceptualized as a kind of booster of the immune system and as theologically neutral. Body and mind or body and soul are fused into a new rationale of medicine in this case. But the fourth case she presents seems more ambivalent despite what the Christian fundamentalists are making of it. Perhaps prayer is working here as a boost to the immune system, but I think that that's an acceptable explanation to many people, which may be glossing something more radical, that perhaps God is being persuaded, or the rationality for other people will be that God is persuaded to change his plan for this individual and to grant a miracle. So as Anne Harrington says, the fourth case is radically different from others, and perhaps not only at the level of its exclusive claims for one theology. Thank you.
Three speakers is a lot, three respondents. I'll try to be quick, and this is two hard acts to follow, but we have all gone in very different directions with our comments. First, I want to thank our eloquent speaker for sharing with us her thoughts on the emergence of religion as a form of medicine leading to better health in the contemporary U.S. I respond as a medical anthropologist with a special interest in transcultural psychiatry. And I'm not going to re-argue for you. I think we're all clear about her four distinct points, um, three of which I'm going to, the first three of which I'll take up first and the latter idea that prayer works I'll take up last. She, I note that she has framed her discussion by indicating that medicine and religion form at best what she calls an uneasy alliance. Medicine and culture form a similarly tense relationship. In fact, the term medical anthropology has been termed an oxymoron, undertaking an inherently impossible task of embracing both the clinical scientific study of biomedically defined disease and the subjective, socially and culturally constructed, and politically constrained experience of the mindful body in illness and suffering. At least since Frank's landmark work, Persuasion and Healing, which was published in 1961, medical anthropology and transcultural psychiatry have explored around the globe the important roles in healing of faith, hope, group support and attention, suggestion, reaffirmation of shared cultural assumptions, and an organized plan of action. In particular, studies of charismatic healers such as I. M. Lewis's classic study of Somali ecstatic religion and John Kennedy's exemplary study of Nubian czar cult have shown the remarkable transformative power of healing rituals. More recent analyses of healing rituals have shifted focus onto the healed as well as healers and have shown how religious healing is affected through its semiotics, its construction of meaning, a thread you'll see running through all our comments, sometimes through the experience of the sacred. Healing medical practice, Western or non-Western, is thus always embedded in culture. With the quest for therapy, a search for meaning and order, because suffering is always a moral experience, a violation of the normative. Suffering unmakes worlds of meanings, and illness narratives with their idioms of distress and rituals serve to reconstruct those worlds. This is why when Anne Harrington says caring, prayer, witness-bearing, and meditation are actually most powerfully conceived as moral antidotes to a modern medicine that knows more knows no register other than the therapeutic one. In this sense, the distinction between cure and care becomes essential in our analysis. The U.S. healthcare industry, with its increasingly corporatized, commodified technologies, does sometimes effectively provide cure in the context of a highly circumscribed set of diseases and injuries for a limited set of people. It is in providing care for the vastly greater number of human ailments and ills that its limitations are growing ever more clear. The question of whether pr prayer works as medicine raises numerous other problems. On the one hand, humans have an amazing capacity to hedge their bets when it comes to seeking cure or just avoiding dysfunction, for example, by popping vitamins and pursuing other methods of what a colleague of mine calls harm reduction. 
So if prayer works, it almost certainly does this in concert with a host of other practices, affects, and cognitions on part of both the prayers and the prayed for. Also, while faith can be religious in nature, faith, faith, I would remind us, has as well a secular aspect that is closely linked to trust. Social theorists Giddens and Beck, in their analysis of our global risk society, mark as one of its most corrosive qualities the accelerating loss of trust in government, in science, in corporate-driven decision-making about public safety, and in medicine. While it may not be clear if prayer can heal in the clinical sense, it is demonstrably the case that lack of trust and negative expectations about outcomes can harm. And finally, the most dangerous thing about the notion that prayer can heal, to my mind, is what could so easily follow from this. I don't believe there is any consensus in this fractured world about what constitutes the ethical and the moral, so the issue of what and who is prayed for seems critically important to me. Prayer could be argued by some to be an effective substitute for access to medical care, yet another form of the symbolic power of the, symbolic power of the powerless for the poor and the disenfranchised. In our privatized system of rationed care in the U.S., the moral judgment that the healed, or the healthy, are the righteous is already thriving, even though we know that increasingly the healed and the healthy are primarily the haves as opposed to the have-nots. Thank you. Thank you very much to our three discussants. Are you all comfy over there? Four, uh, we have four people in one table. Um, and, and thanks to you, this is, uh, we're, we're going on tonight, um, and uh, we would like to do some question and answer, and then have a reception afterward in the back. Um, I, I've looked through many of the questions, which perhaps were penned before, and before you got to your punchline at the very end. I think many of people in the audience were kind of second-guessing whether you believed in this or whether you didn't believe in this. And, and what I read, I'd just like to ask a general question which summarizes many which you and the other uh, the discussants can uh, address. I find uh, quite, a, quite a bifurcation here of responses. Those who believe strongly in prayer, strongly in its efficacy, that comes out in many questions. And those who are dubious, perhaps even scornful. And that suggests that we have, at least from this sample, we have, we have friction societal friction around thinking about mixing spirituality and health. Is, is that a, a problem to you? Do you see problems arising from, from the, the divisiveness of uh, thinking of, of bringing religion into medicine? What's, what's in, been interesting to me about um, the comments and about the way you've opened is how, what a hot button the prayer issue is. Yes. Oh, blah, 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 this. And I, and I felt that too and made a big point when I, you know, like, okay, now we're coming to, you know, something, we're not in Kansas anymore. Like, you know, this is, there's, we're moving into, actually, we're, one of the big studies was carried out in Kansas, but, um, uh, <laughs> but that's one of those weird ironies of, um, um, so, the, yes, there's something about the prayer thing that's, that, that's more divisive because it's not just about whether something, it, 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 the stakes are different. The stakes are different because we're arguing about theology rather than simply arguing about whether or not certain kinds of private practices uh, might be good for health or not good for health. That might disturb, I think you were, what, that the audience is divided and 
I'm not quite sure. No, I, I think this audience has been a kind of a neat kind of barometer throughout the talk of sort of the, a, a gen, for me at least, uh, a, a, the, the general feeling. You all knew it, virtually every hand in the room went up when I asked um, whether you'd heard about the argument that religion is good for your health, and that might be in part because you're a self-selected group. You came here because you had an interest in the topic and therefore knew about it. Uh, but I still think now, there, there's something interesting about the fact that so many of you did, were, did come and didn't know about it, uh, and that you're divided about prayer. It seems also, yes, typical. Yes. Any, any final comments? You know, we have many, many questions which we did not have time to ask, and I think it best that we finish here soon, have a general reception, give you a chance to introduce yourself personally to our, our esteemed lecturer and the discussants, and propose your own question uh, to her in that way. So I would like to thank Professor Harrington for her very provocative presentation. And I would like to thank our UCSB faculty discussants as well. Now, yes, very good. I'd like to thank you for listening to all this. This is what we get to do all the time out here, but you may get tired of it after a while. But this is, this is our lives out here at UCSB. Now, there is, of course, a vested interest in what I'm about to say, but I do hope that many of you will join us uh, for the final lecture in our three-year series, scheduled for one month from tonight here, Thursday evening, May 15th, Corwin Pavilion, when I will present a lecture entitled, In Blank, We Trust, Science, Religion, and Authority. Please feel free to join us in a general reception to be held in the back. Good night.